Well, dear congregation, I would ask you now to please turn your very prayerful attention there to 2 Kings chapter 14. We continue to make our way through this tremendous book of the Bible, 2 Kings chapter 14. We remind ourselves of what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 15, verse 4. For whatsoever things are written aforetime are written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. And our hope is in God. A hope that we are learning, that our hope is not in man. Our hope is definitely not in man. But to look to the one who is both God and man, who would come into the world, the King of kings, the Lord of glory, the Lord Jesus, who is the King of his people, and who was promised that would come through this tribe of Judah. God is preserving this nation through a very dark time. The two nations now, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. As we have seen already, Israel in the north has succumbed to false worship. By and large, they practiced Baal worship. They followed Ashtaroth and other gods as well. And they continued on in a golden calf worship, which was done in the name of the Lord. God was never to be represented by golden calves, and that sin perpetuated. And there were other forms of apostasy. There's, as we will read here, the practice of the high places, where sacrifice, even to the living God, was given, that was not sanctioned by God, where they burned incense, and offered up sacrifices which God said he was not pleased with. There was only to be one place where sacrifice was to be given, and that was Jerusalem. Granted, there were Levite cities, but in those Levite cities, no sacrifice, no special place was to be given of before God, because only in Jerusalem, and it would be there with a Savior, Jesus Christ would eventually give himself as a ransom for many, all pointing to that time when the Savior would purchase his bride, would purchase the church. And God did not sanction any of this false worship. Well, what we see in this chapter when we come to 2 Kings 14, as we continue to make our way through the book of 2 Kings, and we're seeing it time and time again, self-confidence. We see here self-confidence in Amaziah, this new king. He was very young when he began to reign. And uh, his self-confidence is exposed and then it's judged. Well, in this passage, as we have read in 2 Kings 14, there are four kings that we see before us here. There's first of all, King Amaziah of Judah. We're not to get confused here. We're speaking of two nations, although they were once one nation. Judah in the south, comprising of Benjamin and Judah. That's the first king that we'll consider, and the majority of the sermon this evening will cover his life and lessons that we can learn about him, his pride, and how God judges his pride, how it's exposed and then it's finally judged. And then secondly, we'll see King Jehoash, who opposes him, and we'll have to turn to 
Second Chronicles to really understand this chapter. You can't understand this chapter without turning to Second Chronicles. And we're reminded as well, aren't we, in this chapter, are not the things uh, that uh, Amaziah did and Jehoash did found in the book of Chronicles. So that's the second king, King Jehoash of Israel in the north. And then there is Jeroboam II, the son of Jehoash. After Jehoash dies, he reigns after him, and he reigns a long time, 41 years. And then there is Azariah, king of, uh, son of King Amaziah, who dies. Amaziah, king of Judah, he will die. And he began to reign also quite young, 15 years old. His father was slain by the people of Judah, and he begins to reign. But what we're seeing here is the hand of God. We're considering yesterday with the young people the providence of God. And what we see here in this chapter is the providence of God and many prophecies being worked out, being fulfilled. And I trust that we'll learn lessons from God's word here today. And my friends, God does not change. The Bible says he is the same. The Lord says in Malachi, I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. And we are told in Hebrews, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. If we think that somehow God is lighter on sin today than he was then, we are sorely and deeply mistaken. God is serious about sin. And he hates to see sin, especially in those who profess his name. Sin is pride, isn't it? It's pride in the heart. And if we think we can conceal anything from God, we're going to have a rude awakening and remind those who are not saved. Be sure the Bible says your sin will find you out. So best to, as we're told in Psalm 2, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. But blessed are they that put their trust in him. He receives sinners. But they have to repent. It's the humble, it's the poor, it's the broken heart that he receives. So let's come to this first king here. We're considering in this chapter 14, Amaziah, the king of Judah, who reigned in the south. And it seems that he begins and uh, he gives a very promising start. Notice in verses 1 to 3 with me. So first of all, Amaziah, we could say, a promising king, but proven to be full of pride and really reprobate. We will see in the end that he is a heathen. He is an ungodly man. It's perhaps not quite clear in this chapter, but it should become very apparent to us when we turn to Second Chronicles. So verse 1, In the second year of Joash, son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel, reigned Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah. So while it's pointing to two kings, it's speaking about the nations, it's using the time of Jehoash, king of Israel, as a datum mark, as a mark in time in which we can know when Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, began to reign. Well, it was in his second year that this king in the south, Amaziah, king of Judah, began to reign. Now notice verse 2. He was 25 years old 
when he began to reign. And he reigned 20 and 9 years in Jerusalem. And we're told several things about him here. And his mother's name was Jehoadadan of Jerusalem. And we're told he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. Yet, not like David his father, he did according to all the things as Joash his father did. So he, he continued on in this, allowing this practice of worship in the high places, in the groves, where incense was burned and sacrifices were offered to the true and the living God. But it was an unsanctioned worship. Now, let's just think about his mother. We're told that his mother's name was, it seems like it's a title she has given, Jehoadadan of Jerusalem. Well, the name Jehoadadan, I think I'm pronouncing it right there, means Lord of Pleasure. So she has this name, Lord of Pleasure. Now maybe that's perhaps what she lived like. It says her name was Jehodanan of Jerusalem. Now we don't know much more about this, but we do know that some of the kings lived to great excesses and their family, and they did often as they pleased. But we know this. But this young man, as we will see, did not fear the true and the living God. He lived for himself. He was a man full of pride. And he certainly didn't have a good example from his father. His father did what was right in his own eyes. He kept the status quo of the day of his father. Yes, the golden calf worship seemed to stop. Well, that was in the north in Israel. And he certainly didn't introduce it in the south. But he did not go after God's heart. David was after a man after God's own heart. But not, notice he's compared to David. Yet not like David, his father. David, of course, many generations before. David was described as a man after God's own heart. Although he did, verse 3, what was right in the sight of the Lord in terms of he did not, as it were, you will see when we turn to Second Chronicles, he did bow down to other gods. But openly as a, as a man in this nation, as a king in this nation, he didn't introduce other kinds of worship. But it seems he began well. But notice, yet not like David, his father, he did according to all the things as Joash his father did. Howbeit the high places were not taken away. And that's a reminder. God is not pleased with this. The Holy Spirit is pleased to put this on record. Let me just say this. God is not pleased with us pleasing others and keeping a status quo. Young men, I would say that God is interested in whether we have a heart for him and for his cause and for his glory. What we will see is that this man is given victory over the enemies, the Edomites. And he does not give God the glory. We see a crack here, but later on, we see it as a great gaping sin in his life. We will see that. While he didn't worship Openly at the start here, pagan gods, he later on does. 
And while he doesn't introduce to the nation false worship, he allowed this ongoing practice of worship in these high places. Now, if you're a Christian, you should be concerned that you walk after all of God's word. We should never be selective. And, and we don't worship God the way we think we should worship. I, I'm not permitted as a minister here to introduce things really that I th simply think will be good. But the things that God has said, and whatever we do, we believe in what we call the regulative principle. And how should worship be? Worship should be the way God has mandated to worship him in spirit and in truth, what he has commanded in his word. But also, that means the way we worship. If you just turn with me for a minute to Psalm 89. And look at the verse 6. Psalm 89 verse 6. For who in the heavens can be compared unto the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened unto the Lord? Now notice, God is greatly. See the word there, greatly? Not a little, but greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints. And to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. You see, that's the climate, that's the atmosphere that should be true of every church of the living God, where there is reverence, where there is godly fear, where people walk in and they are concerned, we're coming before Almighty God, and I better watch what I say, what I think, what I do, how I dress, everything, my heart, my whole life. And worship, by the way, is not just something we do here, but it's a whole life. We worship God 24-7, or at least we should be. Otherwise, you're just a Sunday Christian and you're not a Christian at all. We should worship God in spirit and in truth and in godly fear. He is to be had in reverence. We know that time, remember, when Aaron's sons, Nadib and Abihu, came there in Leviticus 10. How it says they came and they brought their own senses with coal. And the coal should have been taken from the brazen altar, where the, 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 that place where the fat of the animal dripped down. But they took coal from somewhere else and they offered up strange fire to God and God consumed them in an instant. They were just doing their own thing. Oh yes, they were bringing fire. It's right to bring fire, but God is concerned that it is the right fire. That it is from his altar. You see, the fat of the animal would drip down. And let me say this, we can only come, as it were, through the wrath that was poured upon Jesus Christ and by his sacrifice can we only be acceptable to God. When Isaiah saw the glory of God in the temple in Isaiah 6, he said, woe is me, for I am an unclean man. He knew he was undone, but what did one of the seraphim do? Took one of the coals from the altar and touched his lips. 
You see, it was from that specific altar. It was from that place. And it is only through Jesus Christ, my friend, you and I are unholy. And it's only through Christ that we can be acceptable before God. You cannot just swan into God's presence. You're a holy, unholy person, as I am. We're only made righteous through the righteousness of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And so they offered up strange fire. And there are people doing strange things before God, and they think that God will just receive them because they can just offer up any song, any, any way to praise. I'll praise God how I like. You have your style of worship. I have my style of worship. No, God says, this is how I want to be worshipped, in reverence and in godly fear. God does not accept any other way, any other approach to him. We come through the precious blood of a lamb without blemish, without spot, Jesus Christ. When Paul, he writes to the early Hebrews, he reminds them, the Hebrew Christians in Hebrews 12, he reminds them, while the Hebrews then did not have a temple, the, the, the Jews were saying to them, you don't have a, a high priest anymore. We've got a high priest. You're Christians now. You don't even have a temple. You don't have an altar. Paul has to remind them, they don't have Christ. They don't have Christ that was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament types and shadows. They don't have that. They have nothing. All they have is are the types, the shadows of good things to come. Christ is the substance. And Paul says to the Hebrews when he writes to them, he says, you don't come now to Mount Sinai. He says, you come to an even greater place. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. He's saying, when you come to worship and to an innumerable company of angels, God has his heavenly Zion. God has his Jerusalem, which is above, Paul says, which is the mother of us all. Everybody that is born again is birthed by the Spirit of God, born from above, John 3, 3. And the people that are born from above have a different spirit to this world. And how does Paul say that God is to be worshipped in the New Testament? Any different to the Old Testament? He says, no. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. My friends, he's no less to be feared than he was before. Look at Ananias and Sapphira, how they lied to the Holy Spirit, and God struck them down. We are to fear God and to worship him aright, and we are not to just offer him what we think will please him. But what he has said pleases him. But this king and others who followed in his line did not care. They just offered up to God and they just kept the status quo. He didn't want to tackle this problem or it would be too much trouble. 
The true church of the living God wants to please God, not men. Not interested in pleasing men, we must please God. He did notice according to all the things as Joash his father did. And you can read all of that in 2 Kings 12 and the verse 3. But the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burnt incense in the high places. And churches are like that today. That's the charismatic church. That's the contemporary church. They do things that are dishonoring to God. And let me say, it: every hymn, every psalm that we sing, everything we do should be tempered with reverence. Our clothing should be with reverence. We should honor God. You know, modesty is an attitude. Like our dress, do we do the things God has said? The Bible is so clear. This is why the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 11, the women should cover their heads, men should take their hats off. The Bible is very clear because the, the Bible speaks of headship and honor to the Lord. Do we honor the Lord? Joash, unfortunately, he was a compromiser. And the Bible warns us of people who compromise. See the judgment of God fall upon this king later on. Remember how his father quickly gave to Haziel, king of Syria, many things. Well, he has an outward religion. Now, let us move on. We see this crack becomes a gaping and glaring void later on. Look at verse 5. We, see, we do see this man as a sense of civil justice. But really, let us notice further. And it came to pass, as soon as the kingdom was confirmed in his hand, as he became king, he slew his servants, which had slain the king, his father. Now that was justice, that was right. Those who murdered his fathers were put to death. We believe the Bible is very clear on capital punishment. And uh, it was wrong, and so they were put to death. But you notice, and this again is justice, verse 6, but the children of the murderers he slew not. Now, he is following the law of God here, according to that which is written in the book of the law of Moses. And that's a quotation there from Deuteronomy 24 in the verse 16. It says there, the father shall not be put to death for the children, neither shall the children be put to death for the fathers. Every man shall be put to death for his own sin. And that's justice again. He is doing the right thing by just slaying the murderers and not the children, and so on. Now, so it's a promising start. But as I said, he's already allowed for this false worship, although done in the name of the Lord, to continue. Now, usually the standard practice of kings when they got to power is they they would take out the whole family, children and anybody who might be, I suppose, uh, a future ruler from that dynasty. But Amaziah doesn't do that here, and that's a good thing. However, we will see now that he exposes himself to be an unregenerate man. But it does remind us that there is still good 
I suppose because of God's working. Men are not as evil as they can be, and God does put his restraints upon society. And it's, it's only really down to God's providential care of keeping this nation. Things are not as wicked as they could be. God does restrain even the wicked by the common operations of his spirit and by providence. So there's an early promise here. But you notice from verse 7 onwards, you begin to see the cracks show even more. And there's great wickedness and pride in this man's life. Notice the verse 7. He slew of Edom in the valley of salt 10,000 and took Selah by war and called the name of it Jokthil unto this day. Now in order to understand why this is wicked, you've got to turn with me now to Second Chronicles 25. And you see what takes place here. If you turn there to that passage, Second Chronicles 25 verse 5, what we find here is he prepares the men of Judah, 300,000 men, to go to war. And uh, remember, Edom was also in subjugation and they rebelled. They were brought under sub subjugation in the time of David. And now they're rebelling and now he's going up against them to quell these uprisings of Edom. And what you notice in 2 Chronicles 25, is a prophet comes to see him because Amaziah hires 100,000 men from the north, Israelites, to go to war with him. And the prophet says, go to war with Edom. That's, that's right. But do not hire these 100,000 men from Israel because God is angry with Israel. Notice verse 5. Moreover, Amaziah gathered Judah together and made them captains over thousands and captains over hundreds, according to their, the houses of their fathers throughout all Judah and Benjamin. And he numbered them from 20 years old and above and found them 300,000 choice men able to go forth to war that could handle spear and shield. He hired also, notice, an hundred thousand mighty men of valor out of Israel. That's what I've just been saying. For an hundred talents of silver. So he paid them. They were kind of like mercenaries going to fight against Edom. These men from Israel. And he doesn't ask the king of Israel. Now you notice the problem. Come down to verse 7. But there came a man of God to him saying, O king, let not the army of Israel go with thee. And here's the reason. For, because the Lord is not with Israel, to wit, with all the children of Ephraim. Now he should have not even questioned it and gone any further. The Lord's not with Israel. And to go against the Lord is a serious thing, my friend. Israel was sinning. And the Lord is not with Israel. He's not for them at the moment. Now notice the words of the prophet carefully in verse 8. But if thou wilt go, do it. He's not saying don't go and fight them. But don't take Israel. Be strong. Notice, for the battle, God shall make thee fall before the enemy. For God hath power to help and to cast down. So God will give the victory. 
And God did give him the victory. He sends the 100,000 men away. But I want you to notice, at first, he, he begins to remonstrate with the prophet. And this is not right. It just shows that he has a wrong spirit. He begins to argue. And he begins to say, well, what about the 100,000 talents of silver that I've paid, all this money? Well, it doesn't matter. You're going to dishonor God. His attitude is all wrong. And Amaziah said to the man of God, but what shall we do? For the hundred talents which I have given to the army of Israel. It's interesting what, what he says, what shall we do? No, what shall you do, Amaziah? You went ahead, you never even prayed to God about this. If he had have prayed to God in the first instance, should we go to war? The Lord would have said, yes, go. And the victory is yours. And by the way, you don't need to hire anybody. But that's not his attitude. So he asks, but he, nonetheless, he acquiesces, he gives in, and he sends these men back. And notice, he says, O king, let not the army of Israel go with thee, for the Lord is not with Israel, to wit, with all the children of Ephraim. That's what he said. And then the verse 9b, and the man of God answered, the Lord is able to give thee much more than this. Doesn't matter. Remember, it's not by the might of men, is it? But it's by the Lord's mighty power that he's able to deliver. Remember what Jonathan said to his armor bearer. By little or few, the Lord is able to give the victory. It's just showing that this man really doesn't have the right spirit. So we read verse 10. At any rate, he sends the Israelites back, men in the north, and Amaziah separated them. That's from his own men. To wit, the army that was come to him out of Ephraim to go home again, wherefore the anger was greatly kindled against Judah, and they returned home in anger. These men go back. They're angry. Well, that's his own fault. He never consulted God in the first place, did he? You know, many people, they make a decision and they say, now God, please bless my plans. It's not the spirit of a Christian. We are to acknowledge God first, and then he will direct us in our path. You never make a decision and then ask God to bless you when you're halfway down the road, my friend. That's wrong. And Amaziah strengthened himself and led forth his people and went to the Valley of Salt, by the way, that's the same as Edom, and smote the children of Seir 10,000, and other 10 thousand left alive and did the children of Judah every carry away captive and brought them unto the top of the rock and cast them down from the top of the rock and they were broken in pieces but the soldiers of the army notice see what happens now these men that he sent back look at verse 13 which Amaziah sent back that they should not go with him to battle fell upon the cities of Judah now he's got another problem get a serious problem here these men that he hired to fight with him. They've attacked the cities of Judah. What a fool. If he'd have just sought the Lord in the first place, none of this would have taken place. So we notice they turn upon the cities of Judah and from Samaria even to Beth Heron and smote 3,000 of them and took much spoil.
This is a, a lesson in the first place, friends. If Amaziah would have prayed to the Lord before he ever considered going to war against Edom, none of this would have happened. But it reminds us that pride goeth before destruction, and an haughty look before a fall. Proverbs 3, 5, Trust in the Lord with all thy heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Be not wise in thine own eyes, says the Lord. Fear the Lord, and depart from evil. And this really begins to show us that this man was actually a lost man. He never really prayed. Only when in distress. And some people are like that. The only, the only time they pray is when they're in distress. Now it came to pass, notice verse 14, that after Amaziah was come from the slaughter of the Edomites, that he brought the gods of the children of Seir and sent them up to be his gods. And bowed himself before them and burnt incense unto them. Can you see his heart's revealed now? God's given him the victory. The prophet even said he would. But what does this silly man do? He, he brings the gods of Eden back to Judah and he bows down and he worships them. My friends, let me bring this down to 2023. We've had a successful week in business or doing what we're doing. We say we worship the living God. We come and we rest one day a week. And we give the God of heaven glory for the victories that we've had in this world and the things that he's given us and the things that he's blessed us with. We don't go and spend more time in the world. And we don't give ourselves to the, to the idol of this world. We give ourselves to God. But that was this man's problem. His heart was in the world. His heart, what's he doing taking these gods that can't speak, that he has to carry, that he has to pick up and put in some place and maybe even nail it down to the, to the table so it doesn't totter over. But people do that. God gave him victory in Edom. But he brings back these gods. And this, my friends, is an insult to the living God. God has given us one day in seven whereby we rest in him. And we say, Lord, you've given me life. You've given me everything. You've given me forgiveness of sins. I rest now in you. And I give you this day exclusively for you, God. And I want to honor you. And keep your commandments. Many aren't like him. Many are like him, should I say. And now he's got a problem. These 100,000 men, they turn on his own cities. You see, there's an unspeakable irony in all of this, isn't there? The man who will serve himself, God will bring to naught and to ruin. He walked in his own wisdom, in his own vain conceits. 
and many do. He brought back these fake gods that could do no, him no good, just mocked him, mocked his nation. And it's interesting, if you look at verse 15, the Lord sends the prophet again to him. Twice now, the prophet said first time, yes, go to battle. God will give you the victory. He has not given God the victory. What he should have done when he went back to Judah is he should have got on his knees and thanked God instead of bowing down to those images. And that's what you all should do and what I should do every Lord's Day. We come here because he has kept us and he's guided us for another week. And we don't spend more time in the world today, but we spend time with God and we give him the glory. But notice, the prophet comes to him again in verse 15, and wherefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Amaziah. Why? Because he's bowing down to these things that he's giving glory to, not to the true, the living God. And he sent unto him a prophet which said unto him, Why hast thou sought after the gods of the people which could not deliver their own people out of their own hand? I mean, why are you bowing down to these Gods of the Edomites who couldn't even deliver them. Think of it. The God of heaven overthrew the gods of the Edomites. But what does he do? He bows down to the gods of the Edomites. I mean, sin is madness. Isn't it? I have to say here he is an unsaved man. Bows down to these idols. But thirdly, I want you to notice this king has an utter disregard for God's word. And I would say that to anybody who's not saved here today. You, you don't have a regard for God's word. And that is a solemn thing. And it came to pass as he talked with him, that is the prophet, that the king said unto him, Art thou made of the king's council? <laughs> He's talking down to the prophet, saying, Who made you a counselor? Who are you to lecture me? Forbear. Why shouldest thou be smitten? He's actually threatening the prophet. It's unbelievable. Who made you the king's counselor? Do you really want to be smitten? If, is it in effect saying, well, if you know what's good for you, just be quiet. Otherwise, I'll silence you. I'll send you to the grave. My friends, God is not mocked. And we read, then the prophet will bear and said, I know, notice, that God hath determined to destroy thee. This is a warning to him. Notice, because thou hast done this, and has not hearkened unto my counsel. Remember how he was mocking his counsel? He says, well, you've not, you've not hearkened to my counsel. God will destroy you. Let me say this. People who aren't saved, who are unregenerate, don't heed the counsel of God's word that he gives through his ministers. They don't. Take it just as a message from man, not from God. And this is terrible pride, and it's going to lead to his utter destruction. You notice he issues a challenge now 
Here's the pride of this king to the king of Israel. Notice what he says. Then Amaziah, king of Judah, took advice and sent to Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, the king of Israel, saying, come, let us see one another in the face. Now, at the first here, it might appear that it's, it, it, it might appear that it's just a, a conversation, but that's not it. At least, we have to say that the king of Israel sends him a parable. And in this parable, interwoven is a, is a warning. Now, you, you, you notice here, as you come to this parable, it, it's a message. There's a tiny thistle, the thistle of Lebanon. There's the cedar of Lebanon. And then there is a beast that crushes the thistle. Notice what the king says in verse 9. And Jehoash, the king of Israel, sent to Amaziah, king so he's not actually with him now he just sends back a message saying the thistle that was in Lebanon sent to the cedar that was in Lebanon saying give thy daughter to my son to wife and there passed by a wild beast that was in the Lebanon and trod down the thistle it's very simple the thistle is little Judah the cedar the great big tree you imagine a tiny thistle and you imagine a cedar trying to compare the two together the thistle says to the great cedar, give me your daughter to wife. In other words, you're above your station, Amaziah. You're a little man. You're a nothing. You're a nobody. He says, you have had victory. Notice, if you look at verse 10, you've had victory over Edom. Thou hast indeed smitten Edom, and thine heart hath lifted thee up. That's the problem. Pride has lifted you up now. Glory of this and tarry at home. Go back home now. If you know what's good for you, go back home. And he says, For why shouldest thou meddle to thy hurt? And thou shouldest fall, even thou and Judah with thee. It's a warning, isn't it? He is just a little thistle, and God can crush. And God does. Verse 11, But Amaziah would not hear. Therefore Joash, king of Israel, went up, and he and Amaziah, king of Judah, looked one another in the face at Beth Shemesh. He stared him down. And you notice what happened in verse 12 to verse 14, and there was a, a great massacre of the men of Judah. They were utterly defeated by Israel and sent home in great shame. More than that, he took all the gold and silver, verse 14, and all the vessels that were found in the house of the Lord, that's in Jerusalem, in Judah, and in the treasures of the king's house. It was utterly humiliating for Amaziah. Pride, my friends, goes before destruction, and an haughty look before a fall. He looked at him with great pride and dared him. And that's what happens when men trust in themselves. This man, God gave him the victory in Edom, but he gave glory to, to, to idols. And do you think God is going to leave him in his pride, unjudged? No. Now, it's interesting. Jehoash dies before him. You look at verse 15. Now, the rest of the acts of Jehoash, which he did, 
and his might, how he fought Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles? And Jehoash slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, and Jeroboam his son reigned in his stead. But come back to Second Kings here, chapter uh, 14. We notice how that indeed another 15 years carry on and this man's still alive. Verse 17, And Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived after the death of Joash, Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel, 15 years. And he's perhaps thinking, well, that's it. My enemy's gone. That's it. That's not it. It's not over. And it's often the case, while we're thinking about this with the children this morning, we're told in Ecclesiastes 8, verse 11, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. He thinks God's not going to judge. But look at his end. Verse 19. They made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem. And he fled to Lachish. Now we don't know what that conspiracy is. But nonetheless, they put him to death. The people of Judah put him to death. And they put his son on his throne. Very quick, wasn't it? A quick end, a swift end. Perhaps never thought it would end this way. But it did. Ended in his terrible death. He's running for his life. The people, perhaps now disillusioned by the defeat of Jerusalem and these cities. He's not doing anything. A man humbled by the king of Israel and they put him to death and they put his son Azariah who was 16 years old and made him king instead of his father. Verse 21. So the poignant irony in all of this is God's unmistakable judgment upon this proud king. My friends, you know, the Bible warns us time and time again. God says, six things do I hate. Yea, seven, a proud look and a haughty spirit. What kind of a spirit do we have? Do we realize that we are weak? We're nothings. We deserve nothing. And anything good done in our lives, we should always give God the glory. We should always give him honor. We should always give him our best. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goeth before destruction, and an haughty look before a fall. Now we need to try and round up, but the remaining verses, notice verse 23 to 29, deal with Jeroboam II in Israel in the north. And what you will see, what took place in Amaziah, actually takes place in this next king, Jeroboam. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, that's Jeroboam II, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 40 and 1 years. And this man follows on in the line of most of the wicked kings in Israel. And notice verse 24, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, 
and departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. Again, time and time again, this golden calf worship is perpetuating in Israel in the north. Can't get rid of it because it's in the people's hearts. This king should have changed it, but he's not concerned. Now, if you just very quickly turn to the book of Amos. Amos, the prophet, lived during this time and he prophesied concerning the impending judgment now that is coming upon Israel in the north. And what happened under Jeroboam is God gave, this is really striking, God gave Jeroboam even power over the enemies in the last day. In these last years, soon Israel will not have a king again. And Amos prophesied during this time, and so did Isaiah. Amos 1, 1. The words of Amos, who was among the herdmen of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. You notice that here, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, the Lord will roar from Zion and his utter voice from Jerusalem. And the inhabitants of the shepherds shall mourn and the top of Carmel shall wither. Come down to chapter 3, verse 14. In that day that I shall visit the transgressions of Israel upon him, I will also visit the altars of Bethel. This here speaking about the golden calf worship and the horns of the altar shall be cut off, and so on. Come to chapter 4, verse 4. Come to Bethel and transgress at Gilgal. Multiply transgression. God is condemning this ongoing worship of these golden calves, all done in the name of the Lord. And he says, chapter 5, verse 5, Seek not Bethel, nor enter into Gilgal. God is saying he is going to judge, and he does judge in 722 BC, not far from now, because of this continued false worship. Now, the interesting thing is, Jeroboam II, under his reign, the Lord restores much of the land of Israel back to them. He gives military might, but that is only because the Lord had prophesied that to Jonah, the prophet. Verse 25, you come back to our chapter. He restored the coast of Israel from the entering in of Hamath unto the sea of the plain, according to the word of the Lord, God of Israel, which he spake by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai. By the way, that's the same as the prophet Jonah that we have, the book of Jonah, which was of geth Hepher. Now notice the explanation. Here's the only reason. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel and was very bitter and there was not shut up any nor left nor any helper for Israel. And the Lord said not that he would blot out the name of Israel under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now the lesson very simply there is that God can and does even use ungodly men, but he does use it for his glory. And he is keeping Israel now for a while because the time of their destruction is not yet, but it soon shall be. And this time of respite is meant to cause the children of Israel to repent. 
That God has not utterly forsaken them. But they don't. The long-suffering is a lesson of God, let me say, does not lead men to repentance. But it ought to. It ought to. Look at Pharaoh. How many times Pharaoh was warned, shown time and time again, then utterly God destroys him. Again in Amos 6, 13, Ye which rejoice in the thing of naught, Lodibah, that was the name of the place. It's, an, it's a play on names. Which say we have not taken unto us horns, Canaan. It's a play on names. They boasted in these cities that they took in. They boasted. Israel, what Jeroboam said, it's by my military power and might that we have gained all this territory back. No glory to God. That's exactly what Amaziah did. And that is what exactly many false professors do. You are only here, and I am only here, saved or not, by God's forbearance. He could have swept you away, my friend, this last week. You are only here by his forbearance. And there's coming a day when we will have to stand before him. God gave them the mercy of recovery, but they didn't reflect, they didn't repent. And you think about it. Look at this Amaziah. We've got one great lesson to learn from him. The king in the north died. The prophet came to him and said, you bow down to false idols and you've given them the glory rather than God who gave you the victory over Edom. And what have you done with all these years? Nothing. You have not repented. You have not asked for God's mercy. And your end is now. And God took him away. My friend, behold the sin of self-confidence in Amaziah. But behold the sin of self-confidence in many professing Christians. They're not Christians. The fact that we show up here every Lord's Day is A, to give glory to God and to remind us never to have confidence in our own strength, because we have none. Our strength is in the Lord and Him alone. We are unworthy sinners with propensity to give glory to anything else but God. May God ever humble us. Self-reliance, my friend, is a mark of an unsaved man. It is. An unsaved man will boast in himself, he'll boast in his achievements, but he will never give glory to God. God says, my glory I will not give to another. No, he won't. If you do anything, or if I do anything, we need to have the confidence that God has his approval in that which we're doing. And never walk in pride. We, we could even be doing a right thing. But completely with the wrong motives. He was doing the right thing. Fighting against Edom. But the wrong motives. So many are like that. Beware my friend. Beware. Beware.
God will not give his glory to another. No flesh, he said, shall glory in my presence. What is man? Nothing. Nothing. May we give God the glory. You know, I, I just close with this one thought. I just can't escape it out of my mind. Abraham, when he went and he rescued Lot, remember as he fought against the kings in the plain, what did he do? Straight from the battle, there was Melchizedek, wonderful picture of the Lord Jesus, a, key, a king and a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There's Melchizedek, bread and wine. Come Abraham. Abraham gave him his tithes. Abraham gave him. And you know, we give God the glory, don't we? We give him the praise. Lest we glory in self. Jesus Christ, my friend, is our only victory. Victory there is on the cross at Calvary. He who bore our sins in his own body. How can we not come here and thank him and praise him and ask him for help every week to serve him? We're strengthened by his blood. We're strengthened by him who gave his body for us to bear our sins away. Amen.